This episode of Leverage Radio is sponsored by Mike Morell's instructional series called Triangle Territory. It's available only on the tiger.io. Use promo code leverage for 45% off on this product. Get it now while the offer lasts. Today on Leverage Radio, we have with us Professor Carl Massaro. Professor Massaro is a third degree black belt in BJJ under Henzo Gracie. He's the owner and head instructor of the Henzo Gracie Academy Northern Valley. We are honored to have him here on our podcast. Professor, how are you doing? Great. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. It's our pleasure. Um, I believe we have uh, one of your training partners, Robert Deagle, uh, to thank for this. Uh, really excited to have you on so that we can pick your brain and just like, you know, get some more knowledge out here. Um, thank you. Yeah, Robert's uh, Robert's really, really great practitioner, great guy. Um, he's been training at my school for the last several weeks. Um, but yeah, we trained again in the city. Are you guys open to this now? Have you opened up yet? Yeah, we've been open since July. We had a shutdown for four months um, from March to July, but we've been open and we're running classes. How has that been, um, you know, in terms of getting people back? Because for us, um, lockdown ended. If I'm not mistaken, or somewhere around September. August. No, August yeah. 10th. August 10th. So, I mean, it's now I think it's been about six months and a lot of people have come back through the doors and a lot of new members as well. Um, in fact, some of the old members have kind of dropped out under the guise of like, oh, you know, I have something and I can't really find the time to train one hour of jujitsu a week. So I'm just not going to show up, you know, I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Uh, but, but uh, I think one of the things that's happened is like combat sports has been on this whole time. So a lot more younger people have been coming into the gym uh, generally to, you know, maybe do some kickboxing or do MMA or do, uh, and jujitsu really is picking up. So just wondering how it's been for you out there since uh yeah it, yeah i mean my my school was really doing very well uh before the lockdowns or before covid came in march and um you know we shut down and uh, it's been really really hard i know a lot of uh, gym owners in my area new york new jersey area i'm right on the border of new york and new jersey they just had a really hard time a lot of shut down there's been a lot of friends i've had that had to close their schools especially if they're in new york city um so they went out of business. Uh, as a result, when I first opened in July, you know, there was only like a handful of people, just like the hardcore guys that just usually younger guys that didn't care. Um, and then a couple of kids, a couple of kids came in, but I found the kids class was very slow because a lot of the mothers were nervous, understandably, about bringing the kids back. But now it's actually starting to really pick up um, since I'd say January, especially last month. Uh, I've had a lot of inquiries, a lot of people signing up, even my kids' class is growing. So I think there's been a change in 
just general culture. I think a lot of people are just very eager to get outside. Uh, here in the U.S., a lot of kids have homeschooling now, and they have a hybrid model where the kids just – I have two daughters. They're 7 and 10 years old. They're, they're just not getting outside as much as they used to. They're not getting activity. So I think a lot of the parents really want them to come back. And with adults, it's, you know, it's a personal decision. I, I even have a black belt instructor that, you know, he wasn't ready to come back yet. Uh, he's waiting for a vaccine. I consider it a personal decision. Like I don't ever fault anyone for it because you don't know what people's real health conditions are. But, you know, the good news is that the general trend is people are becoming more and more comfortable with coming back. So um, I, I really predict 2021's hopefully going to be a, a big pickup for BJJ. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting because like even all the competitions, everything that's happening in the jiu-jitsu world across uh, most of them have been really, delayed. Like yeah, everything, everything, all the ATC trials have been pushed back by like a year. Um, but uh, uh, what do you think the change has been this year? You think people are just sick of being at home or they, again, you mentioned that kids need to get out. What do you think, what do you attribute to the sudden change of, well, people's behavior? Uh, I mean, here in America, it, it can go from anything. It can go from to people's personal beliefs, to the media they watch, to, you know, their health condition. It could be a lot of different uh, varying factors. I think the government has also uh, lit up some of its grip and um, people watch the daily numbers The numbers have been going down. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I think some people are just like, all right, enough of this. I'm not doing this anymore. Um, and it, like I said, it's a personal decision. I don't fault right. anyone for it. Um, but yeah, I have had the same problem with tournaments. We actually had the first tournament in, in the New York, New Jersey area in almost a year. And it was last weekend. Uh, my kids did really well. It was mostly like nine or 10 kids in the tournament. Um, but it, when the adults came in, like you could see it was packed. The problem is they couldn't let all the competitors in the room at once. Mm-hmm. So you have like blue and purple belt divisions going, and then they're trying to start the white belt division, but they had all the white belts waiting outside and they had to wait for all the other competitors to leave. And it was just, it just delayed everything. Can't be done like um, that. Yeah, it, it was hard, but, but you know what? it was good. It was overall, it was a good tournament and uh, people just seem to enjoy themselves. So, so I hopefully, especially with the vaccine rolling out for those who are concerned, hopefully this just life will slowly start returning to normal. But uh, I found a lot of the hardcore BJJ people just, especially if they're in their twenties or early thirties and they're healthy, they just, they just want to train. That brings me to my next question. What about you? Uh, How have you been training uh, this entire time? Uh, I've been training. So, you know, during the shutdown, I wasn't doing anything except for watching videos. And But as soon as it came back, I just started training again, um, you know, slowly picking my partners. But, uh, yeah, there's always room for improvement. And, and I'm training now, I'm training with my students. Nice. We kind of pulled something similar off. We, um, like, we did a bunch of different things. Um, one of our friends, four of these guys basically was one of them was moving out of their current apartment and they had just had it the lease for like a month extra. They just put a bunch of mats in there and four of these guys just lived in the basement and trained from there. We rented this sort of shack on the outskirts of the city 
put some mats there, trained there. There was like metal poles, you know, it was just a thin shed. And we're like, screw it. It's in the back of someone's house. It's yeah. open space. It's covered. In- instant hepatitis if you hit those poles. execution and like water problems are like screw it we're all fine we can still do this we could still at least drill a little bit we moved it to my like rooftop uh at my home like eight and then like um i live in india the culture is sort of different we if you you kind of live as a big family um so there's i live with my folks and my wife Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um so there's these eight people from our competition team training on the rooftop just running up and down the house you know because there's there's only like one shower uh, mm-hmm. or two showers and it's just chaos and then finally we move back to the gym under the you know okay it's just six seven eight of us and we just kept going kept going and lo and behold the pandemic is gone and people can train again. is it though uh, was it ever there it's almost like it it becomes gone in your mind like like i said it it becomes a personal decision you got a group of people who are just really want to train you know they're trying to be as safe as possible but you know i I, if there's a will there's a way and and i found that you know i did have some students who were training together over the, the the lockdown you know they they felt safe enough to do it um, and I think early on, nobody knew much about the disease. I think people are starting to learn more about it now. And they're, they're individually more comfortable taking risks on people. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, wherever you guys can train, that's really, it, you don't have to have a perfect facility to train as long as you have like a dedicated that's, group yeah. of people. Yeah. You have mats and it's, it's relatively safe. You can, you can make tremendous progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How, um, how is the scene in India now? Like Rob, Robert Deagle was telling me like it's really picking up. Like, I'm it really is. excited to hear that. So, um, like you said, you you did a tournament recently uh, about a week ago uh, or a month ago, mm-hmm. and um, we actually, in the middle of the pandemic in December, managed to put on a production or a tournament ourselves, where we um, like reached out to 16 of India's best grapplers. I mean, we already had like a couple of them in our own gym. We thought. And we reached out to the rest of them across the country and were like, you know, if you guys are game, we'll put this show together and um, come, come get it. And we put in a cash prize um, that like a hundred thousand rupees is a lot of money here. Mm-hmm. Um, so we put that up for uh, up for grabs across the country and guys showed up, guys showed up hard. Like that's great. We yeah, we, we spend a lot of money on um, production value as well. Uh, we'll link it to you. I mean, um, and we would love it if you shared it. Like, it would like literally mean the world to us. Yeah, absolutely. Thing, um, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, Robert, has, yeah. Robert has, in fact, visited one of the gyms that competed, and they are producing some really high level guys. Um, We're trying to get him onto the next card, actually. Yeah. Um, we've if been talking his, to him. If if his Singapore thing plays out, um, we're trying to get him on the ad um, because it's, it's under sixty five kilograms, um, and I think he'd run through everyone in the countries. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah his leg lock game is very advanced. Uh, yeah. he, he's he's got a really really great system. Uh, he he's actually been since he's been at my school, he's been working a lot with my students, and and you know people have been exchanging ideas. But he's got a really great mind for jiu-jitsu. Yeah, I, I look forward to seeing him compete in, in the future. Yeah, 
and you know it's it, it is guys like him and um who are coming down here who are showing new ways of thought to some of the schools here and like it's nice to have another uh guy like you which segues me perfectly into my next question um tell us your story when did you start doing jiu jitsu and uh how did you get into all of this oh boy that's just a long story <laughs> um i mean i i started with taekwondo when i was right out of high school like uh early 1990s i was doing taekwondo um i was doing some freestyle martial arts you know kali and uh screamer uh some kickboxing and uh after i had a friend and after the ufc one i remember watching ufc one in 1993 and i remember going to taekwondo class the next day and everyone was talking about Everyone's like, what, what happened? What happened? Oh, they had this fighting thing and some Brazilian street wrestler won the whole thing. Like no one even knew. What Brazilian <laughs> yeah, there's a Brazilian street wrestler. Street wrestler. That was the term. <laughs> That's the new yeah, one. Always crazy. <laughs> yeah, we didn't know. And we're like, what, what is it? What, what is he doing? And then when you finally watched it, you're like, what the hell is this? It's just laying on the guy. And why did the guy tap, you know? And then we're like, ah, I don't know if this happened, you know, you, everybody from traditional martial arts before they felt jujitsu, if they don't have a background in grappling, they, they're usually doubtful, or at least they used to be. I don't think that's the case anymore, yeah. but we're talking the days of like traditional martial arts in America, where it was all about Kung Fu, karate, um, right. Taekwondo. It's like that over here right know. now. It's, it's, Is we're it literally living yeah, that yeah. right now. Yeah. So, okay. so, so. It's <laughs> happening right now, and the problem is they're trying to do it to jujitsu as well. They're trying to uh, sell it, it in, sell it into karate. Where come train three months, here's a blue belt. Come train yeah. six months, here's another purple belt. It's 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 terrible. Like we uh, we'll get we'll into that in the nineties, but we'll get it. I'll get into that. Yeah, there's Sorry. a whole discussion to be had on that. Um, but yeah, I, I remember one of my friends was training under a blue belt in New Jersey. We're talking like 1994, 95. Yeah. And uh, he came to me and he's like, hey, man, I've been learning this, this Gracie jiu-jitsu stuff. I was like, oh, the stuff that was on the UFC. He's like, yeah. He's like, feel it. I was like, yeah, let's, let's roll around. And, dude, you know, we're talking 94, 95. This guy knew basically how to hold side control and mount. And that's it. You know, maybe knew like a submission or two. And I'm trying to get out. And I'm like, man, this is ridiculous. And when you felt it, and this was crude jiu-jitsu at the time, I was just like, man, there is something to this. This is real. I mean, I can't just grab your throat and kill you it's not going to happen and which people think and i really delved into it um so i i still focused i was grappling kind of in new jersey under blue belts um and uh there was only at the time there was one purple belt in new jersey uh, a gentleman by the name of david id who's a phenomenal uh instructor under hoyler and then he had uh, someone that worked with him um and uh, yeah, I, I went through that and I started training it a little bit under them. And then I got my black belt in Taekwondo in 97. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to focus on jujitsu. Like I really wanted to focus on jujitsu. And uh, my friends were going to Hendo's in New York City. So I was like, hey, let me, let me come with you. Let me try it. And I remember when I met Hanzo, I was already a fan of Hanzo from watching him. And uh, I got my... 
Yeah, I, yeah, I was a fan of Hensel's when I watched him like fight Oleg Taktarov and all that. <laughs> I went in and I was like, "Wow, this is him. no." I knew who Hensel was, and right. I was just like kind of starstruck when I first met him. But when I trained at his academy, and this is ninety-seven, ninety-eight is around when I got there in New York City. Hensel's academy, and this goes back to training, like as long as you have mats, he had fold-out mats like gymnastic mats yeah. that we had to put out every night and put back he didn't have his own space he rented space from a kung fu academy in new york city um and there was like kung fu weapons on the walls next to us when we put on our mats in an open space there were a bunch of ninjas and when i say ninjas <laughs> i mean literally ninjas they didn't wear masks but they did ninjutsu they did ninjutsu and they would look over at us like the hell are these guys doing? They're wasting their time on the ground. And then you had guys doing kung fu. And you know, we were respectful of them. No, nobody, nobody was bullying them or anything. We just had a completely different focus. Um, so I stayed there and I stayed with Hendo for years. And, and that's how I got into it. And I, I just never left. Um, it was a really, really good time getting involved. And I got uh stay with Hendo. I got my black belt in jiu-jitsu in 2007. So Wow, so it's been a while. I'm still there today, you know. Yeah, the majority of my training, like I've I've been friends with John Danaher, close friends with John since like '98, and John's had a huge influence on my training as well. So I, I have the fortune of having to train under Hanzo, still training under Hanzo, and train under John. Um, so it's been a really great experience, and that led me to all my work with GSP and and, and everything from there. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much how I got started. Um, but like, again, you said that's going on in India now where it's like, they're more traditional. They're still looking at that um, traditional. Thing. Well, they just, I mean, they use it as how, how, how do I explain it? They use it as a hashtag that they teach jujitsu, but, um, it's, not jiu-jitsu. but it's, it's, it's not jujitsu. Um, so there are a lot of guys who, I mean, they just certify people and they belt them. I don't know how, uh, but they do. <laughs> and they give people this false hope when they come in and they send them back out into the street. And it's really spreading. I mean, the the quickness with which um, this false hope is spreading is insane. Um, so we are... People are belting themselves. Crazy. People are just like... Yo, oh, yeah, I'm we've seen a, that I'm happen as well. Anymore. That's, that's pretty amazing to watch. Myself. I mean, are people ranking themselves? <laughs> themselves? They're like, fuck it. I got it. Or like they met someone and someone came for a seminar or they're not belted by the same person for their entire lineage. Like just somebody came from somewhere. Here's a belt. Somebody came from somewhere. You're pretty good. Here's a belt. Like, yeah, that's not, I, I don't know much about it, but I feel like that's not the right approach. Well, here's my question. Cause this is the beauty is that jujitsu will correct itself. If there's at least, if there are some very legitimate schools in the area, that will be, the epicenter like you guys have black who do you guys train under i'm sorry i'm ignorant of, of um, the area so my coach yeah so uh, <laughs> so that's i so i'm ashwin Hoon, that's more chavla mohit trains under me i'm a purple mm-hmm. belt under mike morell who's a health crazy black belt under whom mike morell um okay great he he, he trains out of pacifica uh cave academy and he's he's a health crazy black belt that's great so, I mean, yeah, so we, we don't have many black belts in the country. We have one, um, one again, black belt in the country uh, at the moment. Um, um, 
I mean, but that's okay. But think about that's how it started in the U.S. And that's exactly. how it started exactly. after it, after it came from Brazil, it came to the U.S. It really picked up. And this was before YouTube, before social media, before the mm-hmm. internet, yeah. and before anyone really believed in jujitsu. So now right. you have people who believe in jujitsu, but it was mostly purple belts training. And if you have a good group of people, you have resources. Nowadays, you have unlimited amount exactly. of streaming material, and it's quality. When I was in the 90s, early 2000s, you had to get VHS tapes. And some of the VHS tapes weren't that great. Some were mm-hmm. very good. I know the early tapes were Henzo's um, and Ma- Mario Sperry back in the day, <laughs> yeah. the late yeah. 90s. And, uh, but yeah, if it, again, it went from the U.S. and it went to Japan. Japan mm-hmm. s- started struggling to learn jiu-jitsu. Look at them now. They're, they're, they're a huge superpower. Europe, too. You know, when Hodger and uh, Braulio moved Braulio. to the UK, there was like there wasn't even a blue belt in the country. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the beauty is, people always used to ask Braulio and, and Hodger because when they moved there, they moved there at a time they were still actively competing. Yeah, absolutely. And everyone's like, "Man, you guys are going to go downhill. You guys are going to lose all the competitions now. You have no training partners." That didn't happen. They actually got better. It, yeah. It's not necessarily who you train under; it's how you train. So everyone thinks that, oh, you need black belts to train with. If you have good direction and you have at least someone over you, so you you have someone you can refer to, you're a legitimate purple belt, you guys can make tremendous progress. And you're going to notice right away, the beauty of jujitsu is that I always say the truth comes out on the mat. So if you have these false blue belts come in or they've only been training three months, you can't fake the fact that they're they're gonna not be blue belts. They're not it's, gonna be legit. It's, it's idiot proof uh, in a way. Yeah, that leads me to my next question. Um, as a friend of uh, John Danaher, you mentioned um, the access to quality training online. Um, what was that like when you saw his series literally explode uh, in the market? In the face of jujitsu. In the face of jujitsu online. What was that like as somebody who has been around that? I mean, for the longest time for you. Well, it, it, it was a revolution. Like, I mean, there's always, like I said, there's always been quality stuff out there, you know. Um, but what John was doing in EBI was obviously something very different when, when the squad was winning EBI. And, I, and John had always been known. Yeah. Henzo and John always collaborated, like, for years. And then um, John was literally a guy that would spend – eight to 12 hours a day teaching privates. And I know that sounds ridiculous. Everyone's like, no, that's not true. No, it literally is true. You'd see the guy there seven in the morning. He just private, private, private. And then he'd take like an hour break. He'd watch YouTube, private, 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 private. <laughs> and yeah. And, and that went on for almost like 15, more than like a decade and a half. Wow. Said. And, uh, you know, and John's got a very analytical mind. And of course, you know, he'd always collaborate with other people there. And he really came up with a system. So I've been watching the development of the leg lock game, watching the development of John's game over years. And a lot of it happened, um, some of it during the GSP camps. I was part of uh, GSP's last five camps. Um, and John, of course, was John and Faraz with the masterminds behind that. And I watched the leg lock game develop. And then when Gordon and Gary and those guys came in and they were very serious um, – what happened is the the evolution or the pressure rather of competition forced the game up 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 and all that analysis from john all the feedback from the dds they got a good crew 
um, the game really evolved. And as you guys saw in EBI, I'm sure you watched the EBIs, they were really doing something very different at the time. Oh, yeah. it, I mean, um, nobody understood yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, there was a huge, huge cry for years. Like, is John ever going to show us what he's doing? Is John ever going to release this? And I was lucky enough that the first leg lock DVD, I was the UK and I was the guy, but it wasn't organized yet. We, we had done it in New York City. BJJ Fanatics did not yet know how much knowledge John was going to say. They didn't know how long the DVDs <laughs> were going to be. They had a microphone problem. Um, I can literally yeah. say like John had so much knowledge. He, we filmed that first day from like literally 12 hours, like nonstop. And then the guys at BJJ Fanatics were like, dude, this is a lot of material. And John's like, I can tone it down. They're like, no, 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 don't tone it down. Keep going. We're used to people showing three or four moves. Like, and, and I was there and they were discussing how they have to restructure the DVDs. They're going to have to be longer. There's so much knowledge here. They're going to have to reprice it. It was just something different than, than they had done before. And I think it was wildly successful. I think it was a great idea. Um, John had to redo it and, you know, he went up to Boston and he had uh, Placido up there to help him and, and Uke's quality Uke's up there to demo mm -hmm. on. Um, but, you know, I own the DVDs. I, I, I tell or rather the, the instructionals and I tell my students they should get them. Um, I think that's been a huge revolution and you got a lot of great stuff too. with Henzo coming out with Galler and, and other teams as well. Um, right. MG in action was a big, 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 big motivating factor and um, I would say a big milestone as well for online so now pretty much the the sky's the limit as long as you're I'd say at least like a quality blue belt quality purple belt you have access to that information you have access to a black belt you can ask questions to you guys can go anywhere I mean with with us um, because it's relatively new here um with competing teams, it's essentially an arms race. So when we got the DVDs, we started learning them. We had, I mean, it's insane how um, the rest of the teams in our country have not yet tried to access those DVDs and instructionals. So they are so far behind at, at some, some points of time that, I mean, why would you not use literally the uh, an AK-47 an AK-47 when you uh, I mean I don't understand it they're using a fucking cannonballs when they could use bullets <laughs> a musket they're using yeah. an old musket <laughs> it makes yeah, no sense I, to I, us yeah well look I I, I I like I said a great series is Hensel's Galler stuff it really right. is um it really has a lot of great fundamental stuff and obviously John's go further faster is a really great system um, like I said, Henzo and John at this point have, have their games have diverged a little bit. They have kind of a different game, but they're they, John's game is based on Henzo's solid principles. You know, right. uh, Henzo really created an amazing environment there that allowed the team to flourish the way it did. Um, and we always used to watch DVDs back in the day. We used to watch VHS, as I said, before YouTube, and we were able to make progress um, a funny story for you is I remember John and I being very impressed with uh, a lot of the Canadians that would come to Henzo's. This is even early days when George St. Pierre came as a white belt. We're talking like early 2000s, pre-2005. 
where all you had were, like I said, those Mario Sperry DVDs, Henzo's, or not, not even DVDs, they were VHS, Henzo's VHS. But we'd see some guys come from like Canada where there were, at the time, there were really almost no jiu-jitsu schools. It was like, like my friend Pat Cooligan had something in Ottawa, but the, I think the highest level was blue or purple there. Same, same idea. But guys would come to Henzo's in New York with skills. And we're like, man, you're, you're pretty good. What have you guys been doing? You know, like, well, we just get together in our garage and we watch the Henzo VHS. We watch the Mario Sperry and we really drill the moves. And I remember John and I thinking, man, they, these guys got really good. You know, there, there were some things that needed correction that they didn't have someone to guide them in. But when they came, they, they came pretty far. And I, I don't understand why someone wouldn't utilize these resources today. You know, they, yeah. people should follow, you know, find some group of people they can train with and, and get these instructionals. So you're saying people are in India are generally kind of looking down on them. They're like, oh, we don't need that. Is that Not only that, but it's, it's also along the lines of um, it takes a lot of work in that sense. Like it's really easy to just watch a YouTube video, teach a class and then roll around for 45 minutes. Uh, whereas it takes time and effort to, to study, build a curriculum, build and... curriculum, drill it yourself, work out yes. the holes, the kinks, uh, the mechanics, yes. and then teach something to someone because you can't teach something half-baked. That's um, true. You have to understand the mechanics behind it. And especially like if you're like, I'm a blue belt, Ashwin's a purple belt, especially, you know, for at least for me, I feel like I have to get it right if I'm going to teach it to anyone else and the other blue belts in the academy as well. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of guys don't want to do that work um, because it is legitimate work to do. It's real work. And, you know, what studies have shown is most people buy these instructionals and actually don't watch them. Yeah, yeah. studies show yeah, exactly. people they don't make them, it all the and way they're like, them. oh, I got the instructional. Yes. And then in their head, they just got better. And then they're yeah. like, I'll watch it next week. And yeah. they don't realize that watching an instructional, like especially something as long as John's or I, I forgot to mention Gordon and Gary's stuff is phenomenal as well. Yeah. Um, they're both incredible teachers. Yeah. Um, watching that, you don't, you don't just like your brain will shut down if you watch it for several hours straight. It's almost too much information. You have to watch it in increments. You have to take notes. You have to practice the moves. Yeah, it actually is work. I was like, wait, this doesn't make sense anymore. I mean, we have books (laughs) of notebooks just lined up in our office. We just literally right here to study. But look, I'm excited about what you guys are doing. That's great. Like you guys have a podcast. You guys have the instructionals. You guys are promoting this. Like you guys are legitimate ranked. Like this is this is the future of it in your country. And and I really urge you guys to keep pushing because you guys can catch up in a matter of no time. Look at how like even Poland. Poland has a lot of champions. Europe. Uh, UK, Australia is picking up. Yeah, oh, Australia. No. I mean, yeah. there was no yeah. jujitsu there almost yeah. a decade ago. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I That's mentioned Braulio and Hodger. You know, mm-hmm. they continued to get better despite only having white and blue belts to train with in the beginning. That's uh, true. Yeah, it's literally. And I remember asking Braulio about it too. I said, Braulio, because Braulio did seminars at my school, I think sometime around 2012 and 2015. And I said, Braulio, what was your secret? Because, you, you know, you went to the UK. I said, was it that you were training with Hodger all the time? He goes, no. He goes, Hodger and I were like, I think it was like six hours apart. Hodger was in London. Um, Braulio was, I think, in Birmingham. Yeah. He says, dude, we'd meet together once a month. He said, I would roll with my white belts or blue belts. 
and I would put conditions on how I had to roll. I would work on new things. I put myself in bad uh, positions. I forced myself to pass a certain way. So by being creative with his training, he continued to improve. Um, and you see like this methodology, Henzel was always big on that methodology. Henzel was always, you know, encouraging us to come up with new ideas. If someone came up to Henzel and said, Henzel, I got a new move, he'd want to see it. You know, he'd want to see what you guys are doing. Having that open mind and positional training, you guys are definitely going to get better. And you're going to get better fast, especially with all the resources. Like I said, I was very excited about, you know, what you guys are doing out there. I'm excited to look forward to what, like, India is going to be producing in the grappling scene in the next five years or so. Oh, Vice, we're so excited to share some of the stuff with you. Ashwin's going up for ADCC trials uh, in December. I mean, I was supposed to go um, last December. Uh, the a- Asian trials are also now insanely competitive because we have the guys from Australia coming down now. <laughs> the guys from Japan. Uh, and we have wrestlers from nobody even knows where. Um, hopefully, yeah. Leglox yeah. will be and assist you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you guys love the Leglock game? Do you play a lot of the Leglock game now? A significant we've, I mean, we've had to arm ourselves... Um, with that, um, so like I mentioned, um, my instructor out in um, in SF, he's a big proponent of leg locks as well, and he's um, well, he realized that we're all playing catch up, so may as well get into it until it's too late. Um, you'd be surprised at the amount of academies that still have not adopted or adapted to the leg lock game. Yeah, even here in the U.S. Even right. here in the U.S., you know, a lot of in we're talking in five years, the game has changed significantly in mm-hmm. submission grappling. And there, are, I've been around long enough to notice the trends. When Marcelo Garcia came on the scene in 2003, it was about arm drags, and then it was X guard became butterfly the big guard. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, butterfly guard elevation, arm drags were big. And yeah. then, you know, the Mendez brothers came on. It was all about the Baron Bolo. It was all about <laughs> yeah. E, I, B, J, J, F. And then, you know, you will go through trends in the sport. And they changed the sport forever. You know, everybody has to know X-Guard now. Everybody's got to be aware of arm drags from the guard and from different positions. And mm-hmm. it's going to be the same with the leg game. The big thing now are, you know, leg entanglements, leg rides, inversions. Um, and instructors who don't, stick with that i think they're they're missing a part of the game um it depends on your focus too i know that i have a lot of law enforcement guys that you know obviously they're not going to be interested in inverting and, <laughs> and going 50 50 you know yeah but you got to learn it i think the more you learn that and the more you understand the relationship you know we're talking to zushi off balancing we're talking entries we're talking entanglements we're talking sweeps you should know it all. You should you should be familiar with it. I think overall, it's just it's all good for the game, no matter what your focus is. I mean, even if uh, you're planning on doing Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I just say, as an instructor, you know, I have to stay on top of the game. So I, you know, I have <laughs> Gordon, I have Gordon's stuff. Even though I train with Gordon, I know Gordon. I still buy his stuff, Gary's stuff. You know, I really need that resource as an instructor to bring the best to my students. I still go to the city. Um, I was going, you know, anywhere between one and three times a week when John was there for the whole time. And now that John left, I'm still going. Henzo's teaching. It's really great there. Henzo's showing some really awesome stuff. So I really believe in continuing education. That's That's amazing. So um, how did, 
so what happened with Johnny? I mean, uh, how come the uh, what made the Dan and her death squad? The taxes are too damn high. <laughs> Uh, I don't really, <laughs> I think it was a number of factors. I think, I think the lockdown affected everyone very badly. COVID affected everyone very badly. Um, New York City, a lot of the, the squad, I think a lot of them didn't actually like traveling to New York City. I, I live, I lived in New Jersey my whole life and I used to have to commute into New York City. Now I live kind of sickly. Like, on the border, uh, you said. Well, no, my school's on the border. I live upstate, so okay. I'm actually a little over an hour and you know ten minutes from Henzo's. So I still drive in there. The commute to New York City is difficult just for jujitsu. It's expensive, and right. you know I really got to commend the, the 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 squad like Gary and Gordon. They would come from Central New Jersey. You know, it's at least a hundred bucks to come into the city if you wow. if you count like the parking across the street from you know you have to park in a parking garage. It's mm-hmm. usually you know forty bucks. You got to buy yourself lunch. You got to pay gas. You got to pay a fifteen dollar toll, and then you got to pretty much spend the day there. So these these guys and I, I talked to the whole squad were coming in pretty much every morning doing two sessions a day, and they were dedicated. Right. And I've seen their evolution over the years. Um, as to why they moved to Puerto Rico, I think after COVID, New York City, the the crime rate went up a lot. It was very hard to train. Um, I think they just they had so they had an opportunity to live in like a nicer area, and I, I think they just they chose that it. for now. You see yeah, them coming back. I, I don't know. I, no. I mean, I hope so. I miss them all. I'm going to go to Puerto Rico and visit them at some point. But, um, nice. you know, I still text John. I still talk to John. And, and uh, they seem to be doing well down there. Yeah. Um, it's definitely better than living in snowy New York City. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, every once in a while, I'll send John pictures of the snow and be like, man, I envy you right now. <laughs> it's, it's a nice – you're living a nice lifestyle. Um, but, yeah, I mean, they – I don't know exactly what's going on there, you know, all, all the details, but I think they're looking at a new gym and uh, training every day and making progress. That's exciting. Yeah. But the good, you know, the good thing is too, Henzo, um, Henzo's been teaching every day in New York city now. He's That's what I was going to ask you. Night. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, and you know, Henzo, I missed training under Henzo for a while because it was, you know, he wasn't teaching uh, every day there. For a while so to see him there every day to go in show support and a lot of the black belts who stayed behind are there um it's it's really it's really going well it's really building up and like i said john and henzo have kind of different theories different games even mm-hmm. though john's game's based for john and henzo but it's it's all great it's, it's really wonderful stuff henzo showed me some really cool stuff recently which i've implemented into my game so it's really it's oh, good like in a way you know? Enzo's working on this new variation where he's locking down the head he's locking down the hips he's got this whole thing of half guard I'd have to show it to you it, it, it would be too difficult to describe but um, but it, is, it, is it on Galler? no I don't think so it's oh, brand Jack. new it's not on Galler yet but if you watch I recommend definitely getting the Galler stuff Enzo Stuff. I have all the I think I do have a subscription. I have I, I have house stuff. Um, I'll check that. House out. stuff is awesome too. Very similar game. <laughs> it's just yeah. mean. <laughs> and you know what's interesting too is that um, 
when Jake Shields came to Hanzo's, you know, Caesar Gracie had always been known to have a game that was similar to Hanzo's. And when I got to train with Jake to see that, I was like, man, this feels like like Hanzo's stuff from back in the day. It's like heavy pressure, heavy head and arm control, heavy low passing. And it was a pleasure to roll with Jake. Um, he's phenomenal, by the way. Um, so, really? yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. House, Caesar, old school Hanzo game. But I've noticed Henzo's game is uh, lately, his game is very focused on shutting down movement. He's very good at shutting down movement. Okay. A lot of the new game, a lot of the stuff is creating movement, creating Kazushi. Right. Both aspects of the game are important. And it's, just, it's good to have a repertoire of both. When, when you're stuck, you should be able to create Kazushi, create off balancing, create space. Where you're on the top, you can have a flowing game where you can go through, you can go around, or you can have the kind of game where you like to shut down and lock people down. I think it's important to focus on what works for your body style and and be familiar with both. Because there are going to be times when you can't pressure pass and there's going to be times when you can't standing pass. We've kind of uh, been working a lot of that in our key classes and our nogi classes we've uh, in fact recently been going over gordon's passing yeah and, phenomenal uh, system it's i believe uh, the second or third time we've had to kind of go into go it again it again it's <laughs> like the first time oh yeah straight over yeah. the head uh, at least yeah. for most of us um, yeah. so we had to kind of do it again and it is like it's still uh, Tricky. Right? It's still, I mean, you if you still teach it to people, and it's like it's groundbreaking because yeah, a lot of the things he says says are opposite to what people have traditionally been taught, like the the leg pummeling stuff. Um, so people, I mean, really take to it quickly when they figure out um, that that's also an option. Um, so it's exciting to see how people have been reacting to that. Um, and in the what key, we. I'm sorry to interrupt. What have you found to be the um, what's contradictory? I'm just curious in, in what they've been taught. Um, so go with Gordon's DVDs. He mentions transferring your weight to your hands and pummeling your legs. Yes. yes. Uh, as opposed to traditionally we're taught of pummeling the hands and weight back. Yes. So yes. that change has really intrigued people and myself included. I find I I in between both and it's it's very interesting to work that game against people who've never seen it happen. Um, yeah. Now, what what's important to tell you, students? It it may seem contradictory. It's just a different approach. They both work. Um, the first person I've seen to use these these floating style leg pummeling passes was uh, my friend Sean Williams. Sean Williams is a fourth degree black belt under Henzo. He got his black belt the same day as John Danaher. So Sean uh, opened up Henzo Gracie, Los Angeles. I think he was running that. I think he's moved to Tennessee now. He's opening up in Tennessee. But Sean had a system in, I think, 2009, 2010, that he was using called ladder passing. He called it ladder passing. Interesting. And it was based on placing your hands head over head, floating over them, and using your legs to get around. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing it and be like, man, like it would just kind of blow your mind when I, we're talking 2010. So this was like, man, what can you show me this ladder passing? And it almost looked like you would just float over your guard, pop, 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 <laughs> boom. And all of a sudden he's on your hips. Right. And obviously he worked that with, he, you know, John and him collaborated and, you know, 
they all came up with their own things and, and Gordon took it to a new level. And uh, we worked some of those concepts, those early concepts in uh, GSP's last camp against Bisping because believe it or not, that, that style of floating pass, when you're head over head, even though your weight's on your hands, it's very hard for someone to get up because you're crowding them. So if they right. try to get up, they almost have to expose their back. And if you have very good leg pummeling skills, it's a very good loose way to get through. I have noticed, yes, this is the new trend. Even my students, whom I haven't shown the floating pass to yet, are using it because <laughs> they're watching, which I think is great because it right. just brings the whole level of the room up. Um, but yeah, let your students know it's definitely not it doesn't negate what they've been shown before. It doesn't mean right. what they've been shown before in terms of, oh, that's not good anymore. No, it's just a different just, theory and approach to Just it. a different theory. It is advanced theory, though. It is definitely advanced. Um, right. But look, uh, an early guy that used a variation of it, if you even look at Damian Meyer when he fought Gunnar Nelson. Uh, right. Gunnar Nelson's a good friend of mine. He fought him in the UFC. Right. He used that shin pin. He liked the shin pin people. He would kind of sit and, and like pin that thigh down in the guard. And he'd strike mm -hmm. from there. And he hit people from there. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a really, really strong position. And and anytime they try to create movement, create space, they you're one step ahead of them. Yeah. Right. It's definitely gonna I think it's here to stay for sure. Interesting. I mean, wouldn't even have thought of that. Wouldn't have yeah, I, when I, I forgot about that fight. That was a that when I saw that fight, I was like, wow, Damian Maya's really got something because uh and I obviously I knew he did, but I Gunnar Nelson trained at Henzo's for years. Oh. He came from Iceland. Uh, yeah. He got his black belt under Henzo, and he's a talented kid. He's yeah. like naturally strong, his, athletic, his work in the smart. Is uh, some of the best grappling, like cleanest, purest jujitsu you've seen. Where yeah, he just gets and, to and, the guy's back. Yes. And at a time when grappling in MMA, like some people were like, ah, you know, there's not a lot of jiu-jitsu in MMA over. anymore. Yeah. It's really not. What people have to understand is that the level in MMA had gone up, you know, exponentially. And everybody, everybody you see in the US in the UFC has at minimal, and I mean minimal, purple belt, brown belt skills with black belt ability to get to their feet. You know, this is one thing that's shocking. People forget, like, how good a, a modern professional MMA fighter is at getting up and how, how good they are at stopping submissions. Mm. Um, the lack of shirt is a huge deal. The gloves yeah. are a huge deal. Absolutely. So I think that really affected the fact that everybody knew jiu-jitsu. And the and short then to rounds. See guys, yeah, the short rounds, it's absolutely. Not and, you, and not to mention that, too, that the, the scoring system. So if you end the round on your back, um, you know, yeah. for most of the time, the judges are going to see that. No matter how good your guard is, a lot of judges are going to be like, ah, he's on his back. He lost. Yeah. Um, to see Gunnar Nelson and Damian Maya uh, come in at that time and, and just purely their game. Even, even Jake Shields, I think, at one, Jake Shields, Damian yes. Maya had a fight as well. Phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah, yeah Jake always had jiu-jitsu. Great jiu-jitsu in MMA. Very phenomenal jujitsu, uh, and like I said, when I once I rolled with Jake, I was like, "Wow, this this guy really is good. He goes very he, hard. He's got he just really won great." The high rollers, <laughs> I believe. Uh, I think today yeah. or yesterday. So congratulations. Yeah, I, I, I could see that happening. Uh, Jake and I and, and my friend uh, Mark Sarone all went up to um, Montreal. I think it was like uh, a little over a year ago before the shutdown, and uh, we trained with George up there. We had a great time. Yeah, Jake. Jake's game is 
And again, this goes, I don't see Jake doing much uh, floating passes. I mean, he knows how to do it. It's just not his game. He is a his body lock stuff. He is a pressure passer. You know, mm-hmm. he, he has a modern game. He knows all that stuff, but he he's once he locks down, gets the half guard, locks down your head and arm. It's, so, it's a good night so, for most people. Mo- right. Yeah. And that's old style. Henzo was always big on that yeah. with us too. It was about putting on so much pressure that literally the guy almost wanted to just be like, does that trickle down into your game as well? Does that trickle down into your game? I'm sorry. I can't hear you. Does that trickle down into your game as well? That pressure type of game? Oh yeah. My, my game is, that's why my left ear is, is worse <laughs> than my right ear. I used to pass to my left really hard. I used to have a very hard style. I still am more of a low passer, more of a pressure passer than I am a standing passer, but I encourage my students to do both and find out what works for their game. Um, even light guys, small guys, I mm-hmm. encourage them to know how to pressure pass right. because um, teach especially it. if they're going up, get someone within their weight range, they need to know how to switch between Fair the two. Enough. Yeah, you can't always be the fast. I mean, even if you plan on teaching, don't you think that's a useful skill to know um, all aspects of it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, and, and it's my job, like I said, to not to create like, cookie cutter students. I can't tell a guy who's five foot four, 135 pounds to have the exact same game as a guy who's six foot three, 240. You know, yeah. they, they might have different games. They might move differently. I like to show them the concepts. I like to teach them the connections, um, solid principles. If you teach people concepts, principles, and you teach them how things link together, and then you create a room or an environment wherein they can train with each other safely and they have a lot of mat time, evolution will occur. Um, and that, that's pretty much how I, I you know, my method to jiu-jitsu. You, you look at my students, they're doing similar techniques, but they have different games. And I'm proud of yeah. that. That's pretty cool. And yeah. um, you, we, we, we just spoke about Jake Shields. And of course, you earlier mentioned that you were there for George and Pierre's last five camps. Don't five you camps, yep. You got you to tell us something <laughs> there. Like. It was a great time. It was a really memorable, wonderful time. Um, I think the first time I went up there, uh, I helped him a little bit with, with his fight against Jake Shields, actually. I think it was like 2011. Um, but right after that, from Carlos Condit on, Nick Diaz to Johnny Hendricks to, um, you know, all of his Bisping, last several Bisping. fights. I, yeah, Bisping. I was there for all the camps. And um, uh, sometimes we'd go up with John Danner. We'd drive up. Sometimes they would fly up. Or sometimes me and my friend uh, Mark Sarone, who's also a Hensel Black Belt, we would drive up. We would pretty much go up every weekend for the eight weeks. And yeah. we'd spend about three days there and we'd, we'd help him with his grappling we drive home six hours come back up the next week and spend time make sure he's going there and on some of the camps john would go up on one time with some of the crew and then we'd go up on a different day and i'd report back <clears throat> to john hey this is what george is doing this is what we worked on um and then we, we'd always collaborate with Faras, whom by the way is i still say is the most underrated so he's amazing he's the most yeah. underrated guy 
in MMA. He's phenomenal. I don't think he's underrated. Um, but we don't collaborate. He's exceptional. I mean, he's oh, he's exceptional. One of my favorite people to listen to. Um, he's extremely intelligent. Uh, he can. He can. He's a black belt under John Danaher. You know, which is, is legitimate. And uh, his grappling's phenomenal. He understands wrestling. He understands striking. He understands the whole game. Uh, he's been a pleasure to collaborate with, and he was, you know, a great host to have us in there. <clears throat> but, you know, George has a work ethic and a positive mindset that I, I rarely, you rarely ever see. Like, even if things didn't work out, like, oh, this got shut down or training, he'd be like, ah, let's just do this instead. It's better. He'd always have a positive outlook on things. Mm-hmm. He, he, you know, he uh, took his training extremely seriously. He was very coachable. So if you show George something, he listens to you. He listens to what you had to say. And if he didn't think it would work for his game, he would politely say, hey, you know, but my guy does this. We have a debate about it. He, he would always listen. He would always listen, and we, we'd have discussion about it. Um, and George is the kind of guy, too, that even when he came to the city um, to train under John and take privates, you take the class and then most people would shower and go home. No, George, after the class would say, uh, he'd be like, ah, Carl, can we work this move on the side a little bit? Or, yeah. Or someone else, he'd work it and he'd work it and he'd work it until he understood it. Um, and it was no different in his training camps. So it was a lot of fun. It was, it was really great. Um, we focused a lot, you know, obviously we didn't train in the gig. We did very specific training, uh, near the end of his career for the Bisping, we, we really had a great system down um, that, you know, he'd focus on certain things for this fight, certain things for this fighter. Same with the Diaz camp. We always study film, say, this is probably what we should work on. This is what we should go with. And John would come up with a plan for us, would come up with a plan. And then, you know, we'd, we'd follow it. But that, that was a masterful performance. The Diaz one with so much heat behind it. Um, shutting him down the way he did, um, unbe- unbelievable. Like now, I I will say this. Now, I've never met Nick Diaz. I'd like to meet Nick Diaz. He's actually friends with my my friend um, Daisuke Yamaji, who's another Enzo Gracie black belt, um, and obviously he's friends with Jay Shields. But you know, I, I did I did help out George a lot with that fight because I was built similar to Nick Diaz, and I I kind of had this loose kind of game that I play on the ground and um, John brought up some other guys that were also very good for that game with Brian Glick, Gary Tonin Um, and uh, but the thing about Nick Diaz that we found after that fight and uh, you know not disrespecting Nick Diaz I'm actually a huge fan of his is that you know they thought there was like a like a spy in the camp because I don't know if you read those articles like after George beat Nick Diaz think Caesar and them came out like, look, he shut us down too well. There had to be a spy. There had to be someone watching our training. And obviously there was no spy. We didn't have any spy connection. We didn't fly someone out to watch them. It it was that Nick Diaz had a very usual game. Well, he had a game, something he had been doing. He had a system that he had been doing and he really, that's the way he fought throughout his whole career. Yeah. So you could watch early Nick Diaz fights. You could watch late Nick Diaz fights. And he had a general trend of the way he moved and a lot of the things he liked to do. And for that reason, I remember staying up all night before that camp, just watching Diaz fights, watching Diaz fights, watching Diaz fights, watching everything I can get my hand on. And every time we went with George, I would 
try as best I can. Now I'm not Yeah, you're never going to be able to move exactly like them, but you want to present some of these problems. So a lot of it was, you know, locking up Kimura from Turtle, um, a lot of Grandy rolling, you know, a lot of four-point position trying to get Mm -hmm. up. Um, And, you know, we just worked on – John came up with a whole system of how to shut that down, shut it down, shut it down. And literally it worked like clockwork. It worked almost perfectly. But George did comment after that fight. He goes, man – he goes, that guy moves differently than I would have expected. Like the way Nick was trapping his arm and trying to grandy and, and uh, sideways roll, George said, Ah, there was something about the way he moved that was way different. And John yeah. and I like, Well, you did great. You did exactly exactly predicted you would do. That was a um, great camp. So, Professor, tell us a little about, I mean, um, you you mentioned that you emulated Diaz a little bit. What is your game like if you had to give, I mean, somebody who hasn't watched you train or compete um, a description? Uh, good question. It's just my own game. Um, <laughs> I never really Don't thought be- of it like that. Yeah, I'm more of a low, I'd say I have a little bit of stuff that Nick Diaz does, like similar type of style. Like, uh, I love close guard, by the way. I know close guard is kind of like becoming extinct in some people's minds, but I I love closed guard. I use a lot of Williams guard, Sean Williams guard. I do use some rubber guard in my game. I know a lot of people like um, downplay it, but I use some of it because I have flexible legs. Mm -hmm. Um, I use a lot of open guard. I use obviously John's principles of elevation, shoulder crunch, Kazushi, butterfly guard. I'm a big believer in creating elevation from bottom guard, like trying to get back to your feet. Even if that's not your intent, that elevation, that off balancing can can open a lot of things up. So if you're, whenever you're playing guard, you should always threaten sweeps, submissions, back takes, and getting back to your feet. And if you can play all those four concepts back and forth, you're giving your, your opponent a lot to think about, a lot to worry about. Wherein a lot of people are just like, well, I'm just going to play half guard, or I'm only going to look for this submission you should be constantly threatening different aspects. Uh, so back to your question, my game, I'm more of a low passer. Like I said, um, I do some floating passes. I used to be a very big leg locker back in the day. Like when I was blue and purple belt, when the leg lock game was like really crude, I was known for my leg locks in like 2000 to 2005. Um, <laughs> explosion. But you know, your game will take And this, this, this is a, a glad you asked this question because you will notice that as you come to the ranks your game will change you will sometimes be focusing on leg locks and sometimes you'll put them aside for a little while and then you'll focus on maybe your floating passes or something or your back system and then maybe you'll come back to the legs maybe the whole leg game will evolve so the leg game has evolved so much like even myself who's been in the room with the dds and train with the dds every week and you know i have all the dvds in front of john I got to work hard to keep up with this. And, you know, I teach the leg lock system. I, I don't have a leg lock game. Like I don't do exactly all the stuff Beagle does. Like right. that's his development. But, you know, I, I still, I threaten the legs and it's hard to say, you know, mostly close guard pressure passing with some right. leg threats and floating passes. Um, I have good pressure. I've been known for good pressure. That's one thing that Hensel really imparted on me was like, how to pressure and put put a lot of pressure on people. Okay, that gives us a 
<laughs> an accurate description, I would say, if I we were to picture it. Yeah. If you, so, you guys, uh, if you have Instagram, check out my Instagram. I have some of my highlights. So I used to put up stories have, on my Instagram, yeah, of, of me rolling with my students and there would be breakdowns. Okay. Um, so some of those are in my highlights and some are on my YouTube channel. So you can actually get to see me rolling with my students and explaining what I'm doing. A lot of people have really liked them. Nice. We will check them out. Um, go ahead. You want, all right. So when did you, um, like, actually, let's go back to your Instagram since you brought it up. Um, mm -hmm. your, the photograph you have in your uh, Instagram account profile picture is an x-ray um which if you zoom into it when you're using a laptop you'll see there's two pins on uh, in the neck uh, in the neck so i'm just wondering is that you no that's me or, good observation yeah um, <laughs> so tell us about that and like what happened how did you bounce back it's a great question um so i apparently had a very bad neck that I didn't realize I had. And I probably had this going back as far as blue or purple belt. And I can't attribute my neck injury to one acute incident like Braulio can. Um, but what had happened is I started getting numbness in my hands like most people do. Um, I started getting like weird like numbness sometimes and tingling in my ankles. Yeah, And I was like, wait, that's kind of and then I would start getting like headaches. So obviously I did what anyone did. I got an MRI. And then I remember when the, the, the surgeon told me, he goes, well, your spinal cord is compressed. Mm -hmm. He goes, you're risking paralysis. He goes, if you even get into a, a, a slight car accident where someone rear ends you, he goes, you could be in a wheelchair. And I remember him telling me that. And I was just like, whoa, wait a second. It's like my whole life came to a halt. This was like 2014. Then I got that diagnosis. So he said, what had happened is your discs in C5, C6, uh, and C6, C7 are like a jelly donut that got crushed and extruded out the back to pinch your cord. And he wow. said, that's very unlucky. He said, normally what happens is the discs bulge out, out the side. side. Yeah, he says, yours aren't just bulge. Yours are like smashed. And he said, and your spinal cord is supposed to be like this. He goes, it looks like an hourglass. And he goes, wow. you actually even have scar tissue on your spinal cord. So this has been there for a while. He said, the sensation you're feeling, he goes, this is, this is bad. And they have something in the MRI called signal change. Did you see my, the, the signal in the slices? Yeah, it was just not good at all. So now I'm sitting there and I'm like, I'm running a jujitsu school. I said, what the hell am I going to do? How the mm -hmm. hell am I going to do this? So of course I went to all the surgeons around here in New York. And by the way, you know, America is known for its um, like advanced medicine. It's actually very traditional. It's actually very conservative. So every surgeon around here wanted to give me fusion. They wanted to say, hey, we're going to take your two vertebrae and we're going to put a cage around them and make it one. And he says, yeah. we're going to do that with three vertebrae. And I've known too many people with fusion that stopped jujitsu or got worse. So I researched it. I had a good doctor friend, my friend, Dr. Yasha Magyar, who's a, a, he's a Matt Serra black belt. He really helped me out a lot. He said, don't get fusion because, you know, when you fuse those two vertebrae together, they act as a lever. 
Right. And then no longer have a shock absorber in the middle because the disc right. is gone. And he says, now you're putting tremendous pressure on the adjacent discs and you're going to get what's called adjacent disc disease. It's going to get worse over the years. So I'm like, what the hell am I going to do? So I looked into all alternative therapies. I looked into patches. I looked into um, injections. And I remember I actually flew out to California to go to the guy, um, God, Dr. Ben Rugi, he is the guy who worked on Joe Rogan. Great doctor. Yeah, his name was Dr. Ben Rugi, and he was giving injections called Regenikine. And this guy, I got to give him a, a shout out. He was very honest. I came out there and I said, can you give this? It's almost like an advanced PRP, almost like stem cells, stem cells like a heal. Yeah. This guy could have, t- it would have cost, it was off insurance, it would have cost $15,000. And this mm-hmm. was borrowed money. and this guy was honest he said listen this is not your best option i can do it right now to his credit god bless the guy he said this is not your best option you should get surgery Mm -hmm. so what i did is i spoke to braulio esteema braulio is a good friend of mine and braulio had a similar option he had a similar thing that happened to him i don't know if you ever saw his accident yeah we did it was hard it's hard to watch spiked himself right often head outside single and he was paralyzed for 10 minutes so he actually had the same injury. It just had just happened acutely. His spinal cord got pinched. So in the UK, they were using a disc called um, Spinal Kinetics M6C. It was actually made in the USA, but you couldn't get it in the USA. Amazing. That's why I said the FDA. So I called Braulio. He didn't even quite know what disc he had in his neck. He goes, dude, I just saw the best guy here in the UK, and I'm fine. He goes, I, I fought in Abu Dhabi right after. He goes, I fought MMA. I surf. He goes, I don't think about my neck, full range of motion. I'm like, that's what I need. So I did my research and I looked around and yeah. So I looked around and I found a a place in Germany that did it. Um, They used this same disc. You had to pay out of pocket. Um, Yeah, but I went there and I I went to Germany. I had it done and it was the best decision I ever made. Like I have... Full range of motion. What was the rehab like for this? Like, and, and I only bring this up because, like, today Ashwin and we've I, started developing like next stuff. So we just went to the physiotherapist today. We're going to a chiropractor for it. We we literally now go once a week. We made it part of our training schedule that we make it a point to go to the physiotherapist and like work out kinks in the neck, shoulders, good, every, all good. knees, all of it. Yeah, I, I'm a big believer in preventative stuff and obviously being safe on the mat. You know, we tend to use, I know Braulio said he has a, a type of game where he uses his head a lot and so do I. Like I push with my head, I put pressure safe. down. We try to as well. Yeah, so it's. I think it's a good idea to decompress the neck at the end of training or, or do stretching or chiropractic. Um, but what Braulio had done was, uh, and I had done, it's actually a disc. It functions like a regular disc. It's two titanium plates. Mm-hmm. with uh, some sort of polymer in the middle that acts as a disc. Right. And right. this disc can shock absorb. It can right. slide like a real disc and right. it can move. Right. So I have one. High-end technology. What, yeah, and it's titanium. So I had it done there. The rehab, and this is the beauty of it. The surgeons in New York told me, we can't put a fake disc in your neck. It's going to come out. They, they, right. said, they didn't even have that disc. They said, the disc we can use, it's probably going to pop out. Um, you need fusion. The guy in Germany said, listen, once I put this in your neck, you can ride rodeo. 
<laughs> and I was like, I can ride rodeo. He goes, Don't worry about your neck once it's in. He goes, Once it's fused, he goes, You're set. It's going to last 90 years. Wow. And like the disc is set. Yeah, and it's so eight times stronger than a normal disc. So the rehab was at three months. They said it will be mostly fused to your bone. Like, don't do anything for the first three months. They're like, don't obviously don't ride rodeo. Don't do jujitsu. <laughs> the first several, the first month or two, I wasn't even allowed to pick up more than twenty five pounds. Um, but I was, I was able to walk around without a brace. I had full range of motion. And then at six months, he said you can actually start grappling. He goes, it'll be fused. He goes, at one year, it's as fused as it's going to be. But he goes, at right. six months, you can start training. So I started training jujitsu about six months in. That's not um, bad at all. That's quicker no, than No, not, not for a complete. It was less than a knee rehab, and yeah. now I have no restrictions. I literally have been in Jake Shields' guillotine. Uh, <laughs> I roll with Chris Weidman. I have had Gordon, Mickey, all these guys. You know, I've always been trapped in next stuff. Move out, and I have no problem. I have literally no problem. So I'm very, very grateful that 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 I went through that. Um, but you there's, I mean? there's. That's good it's encouraging because you know here's the thing my neck injury was a lot worse than most people's neck injuries and my friend yasha told me gary tonin had a neck problem mm-hmm. and um i sent him to my friend yasha and obviously he he's not at the case where he needs surgery mm-hmm. but there's so many options before you get to where i had to go but the last you. resort just know that if you ever did need it if it is out there uh, hopefully so it becomes many. mainstream and covered by insurance <laughs> That's the problem. I think everybody should have access to this through insurance. Right. Right. It's kind of American politics, uh, Food and Drug Administration. But, uh, <laughs> but look, I, I don't pays look us back. More. I, yeah, I'm glad I did it. Um, but yeah, I, I agree with you guys. If definitely try to take care of your neck. You know, it's a good idea to have a strong. <laughs> take care of your neck, guys. It's a good idea to have a strong neck. You know? Right, uh, Professor. That brings me to. I mean, we were talking about your Instagram. Um, Couple of questions. One, um, we see you're a bit of a craftsman with with the knives, at least. Um, and um, knives brought us to well, Danaher and the whole. Uh, he he gives each promotion or each person he's promoting a knife. Um, are those your knives? Are those your knives? Um, do you no. create? Do you. I do. I do. I'm. I'm somewhat of like a hobbyist amateur. I started off with mostly blacksmithing. Um, I've made a few knives, but um, the work I've done for John has mostly been what's called rehilting or rehandling. So John would get, um, now John started getting into knives when I was just starting to get into this. And we used to collaborate and we used to discuss knives a lot. And just like anything with John, he puts his mind to it. He gets into it. He becomes an expert at it very quickly. He's a very smart guy. So John knows more about knife steels now than, than a lot of a lot of people who are in the industry. He knows a lot. Um, so I would rehandle and rehilt knives for him and, and for his collection. But John's collection went from starting off when he first got into it into like cheap kind of mass produced knives. And very quickly, John figured out what was the would be the best and now his collection is elite yeah right uh, he actually before we went to puerto rico he entrusted me with a lot of his collection um to hold on to it for him because the uh 
the salt water, the, the air there, the humidity is not very good Perfect for knives. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So when John gives away a knife, he gives it, it's usually, it's, it's a custom made high quality piece, like a very, very expensive piece. So John really knows his stuff. What is the exact ideology behind giving a knife at each belt level? And you notice that the size and uh, of the blade changes with each belt. I think they get smaller, if I'm mistaken. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not exactly sure. I haven't really talked to John in detail about his ideology there. I know he believes in the process of creating something from like a hunk of steel. The idea of honing something. The idea of the whole idea of heat treatment of steel. And by the way. India is a huge steel industry. They got a, like a lot of like great knives that come out of there as well. Um, but the whole heat treat process and everything, he, I think he attributes to the idea of being able to take somebody from nothing and hone them and create them into a weapon, create them into something. There's a lot of analogy in that. Wow. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not describing it as well as he could, but <laughs> the idea there that's, is that's basically it like it's yeah. the same as pressure creates turns coal to diamonds it, this is just like i mean you yeah. yeah yeah I, I i see it as a hobby like I, i'm i'm a single dad so you know i don't have a lot of time between running my business but when i do have time i enjoy forging i enjoy uh making things out of like nothing making steel putting knives together so, um, they're almost completely different hobbies, but you know, that and jujitsu take and my kids take up all my time. How important do you think these hobbies are? Um, you know, for just like you're doing jujitsu, um, how important are these hobbies to avoid I mean, burnout? And I mean, I have a similar lifestyle to yours. I mean, I'm not a parent, so that's I mean, way, way more pressure. Uh, but I too run an academy, um, I, I'm trying to get into competition. Um, and I'm feeling it, you know, I can't even imagine what you're going through. Um, does a hobby help? <laughs> yeah. You know, for me, it does. I have a shop and it's almost like my like man cave. I just get away and sometimes I just focus. I think it's important to have things that, that put you in a mindful state. And I think a lot of people, that's the appeal of jujitsu is not just the, the power that comes with it, the confidence that comes with it. But while you're rolling, you're just in a state of Zen. You're just, you're there. And what people are talking about mindfulness now, this is why people would enjoy when they do skiing, any skill or hobby where you can just be in the moment is really important. And any skill or hobby where you're just improving yourself, you're improving your skills and you can see that, that improvement. I, I believe in that for anything. Um, I believe it. I think it is important outside of jujitsu to have something else maybe you enjoy doing, you know, as long as if your focus is just, as long as it doesn't take your time off the mat. Because let's face it, getting very good at jujitsu and today with all, like we the talked about the, the leg pobbling, the competition, the leg riding, the back, it takes a lot of effort and a lot of hours. A lot and of as work, a school yeah. owner, like you said, yeah, you have to study almost twice as much, uh, especially if you're a competitor. <laughs> I mean, yeah, and uh, sorry, um, we have the gi game here, which is, I mean, it's not really picking up. So I have to like switch in between gi, no gi. Then I have the MMA guys coming in. Um, so it's, <laughs> it doesn't leave much time. M- MMA is the big thing, right? That's the money maker. So like you, what, what actually tends to happen and is happening is like uh, we were talking about earlier that why karate and 
uh, wushu and these kind of martial arts are still around and still so popular is because they provide this route to like hey you can just go fight in a cage and just kind of like be a badass to, hold on to the guy and just like somehow get lucky and just hit him when he's on the ground and you know that's it so it's like a very 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 rudimentary sort of approach to cage fighting as well um and like guys aren't really keen on doing the hard jiu jitsu stuff like because if you look at it and we when i speak to any of these guys or any striker or whatever i'm like okay you know that the essence of all like your mma is jiu jitsu right like from where it's coming from to what it is it's fine it's changed a lot but like how can you call yourself an mma fighter if you're not really doing jiu jitsu uh, and yeah, especially yeah. like you know you know no, I mean? if if you had a fair understanding of it you're a wrestler who knows how to i mean who who doesn't want to jiu jitsu knows how to get back up to their feet if they get taken down fair enough and avoid submission exactly but we don't see that happening either <laughs> Well, here's the thing that like we said the the pressure will create evolution and and the truth will come out. So if you have people who are very good, they have quality ability to um what we call we used to call um you know, feet the floor, the quality ability to close the clinch, put people down hmm. and control even if it's GSP style from the guard, uh if it's more, you know, Damian Maya if you invest in that eventually those guys that just come in and are hoping for that one shot punch they're going to go by the by the wayside mm-hmm. you know th- keep training people in in what works and then the level will keep going up and those things things that don't work ultimately will get left behind that is the beauty of sport combat sport mm-hmm. is that it will always create evolution um yeah my theory of martial arts has always been if if there is no and in this this is actually John Danaher came up with this uh, we discussed this years ago probably the first guy to notice it too was John was that martial arts that did not have a sporting outlet tended to become less functional they tended not to be as functional and John noticed this uh, when he was bouncing he said when he used to bounce in um on the upper west side in New York City He said the hardest guys to deal with in altercations were wrestlers, and judo guys, guys yeah. and boxers. Mm-hmm. And we're talking late 90s early 2000s when, you know, it was still everyone still thought it's kung fu right. and it's karate, karate and it's aikido. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. and stand up <laughs> Japanese jiu-jitsu and John had a lot of experience with that it would not work and I started noticing that too in the martial arts that in a lot of the traditional stuff once you implemented things with pressure training like sparring and rolling a lot of the stuff that did not have that outlet just didn't seem as practical it just didn't seem to work over time um so that's why i think it's important that the sport is just going to having a sporting outlet is going to make sure it's going to keep the truth it's going to keep the truth out there you can't think of it that way Yeah, it's it's true though because you know when this this idea first came out everyone's like well that's just a sport why why is it effective well you're you're going against somebody who is trying as hard as they can to beat you and you're putting in just enough rules to make it safe right. you know <laughs> everyone used to say well everyone used to say well you can grapple but if you take me down I'll just gouge your eye <laughs> and I used to say well let's I say let's take a look at a guy like BJ Penn in his in his heyday. You right. know, do you think that if I 
took your gloves off and told you to fight BJ Penn and said, eye gouges are now allowed. You don't think he can take you down and put you in a position where he can eye gouge you better than you can eye gouge him? Like he can eye gouge too. And now he's in a position of positional advantage. Like it, it doesn't change the game as much as people think it does. Uh, right. And it turns out that, yeah, having solid grappling skills is a must. Having striking skills is a must. Having grappling the ability to get back to the feet, 100% a must. Um, and then they notice that when you add in all these other elements, it didn't change it as much as people thought. Mm-hmm. Um, so, like, what about some advice for, like, basically a lot of our listeners are 20-year-olds, 22-year-olds, maybe some slightly older guys. And a fair few of them are pretty competitive. Um, what advice would you have for some of these younger guys who are trying to, you know, make a name for themselves in jujitsu? Um, any inspiration they can draw from the DDS or anything you can share with us? Yeah, absolutely. 100%. They should, uh, invest in, and you know, I don't get any money from their DVDs, so, you know, <laughs> but they should invest you in any resource card. online that they're very interested in. Like I said, find legitimate resources. Obviously I'm, you know, bias towards Enzo Gracie's Galler stuff and you know Gordon and John's stuff and Gary's stuff I think all of that's very very high quality and it fits into my game but you know if that's not your interest obviously there's MG in action you know you know Hodger Gracie online is a very big one Barley Estima all of these guys are excellent and even YouTube if you watch YouTube it used to be in the day you'd have like a blue belt showing a move that wasn't so great there's a lot of quality instruction on YouTube too. Um, you Have know, you checked so out I, Ryan Hall stuff? Ryan Hall. Ryan Hall stuff. Oh, by the way, I, I didn't mention Ryan Hall. I trained with Ryan Hall up in um, in TriStar. He's a phenomenal guy, very intelligent guy, and yeah, his stuff is absolutely amazing. I watch his stuff too. So again, going back 20 years, this didn't exist. 15 years didn't exist. 10 years ago, it didn't even exist. So I would encourage these guys to to really like find a legit as legitimate an instructor as you can right and by the way what part of india are you guys in in the south or north india we're the capital. in north india uh, we're just india outside the capital yeah so in the whole country saying it is only like basically one black belt right uh, uh yeah black belt yes uh, i see i see <laughs> so what's gonna probably happen is you know like i said you have a group of people who are dedicated towards a goal and they have the right resources and they're able to train, the level's going to go up. And eventually as people roll with each other, all those fake blue belts and those people that promoted themselves, yeah, they're going to get weeded out because Mm -hmm. the nature of the sport and the nature of live training is it, it, it will correct itself. And this goes back to the sporting aspect. You look at freestyle wrestling, you look at judo, uh, you even look at uh, scholastic wrestling and you look at jujitsu, you look sambo. at how these sports, sambo, even fencing. You know, I, I'm a fencer. These sports oh. evolve. And it, as long as the rules stay relatively the same, yeah. the level of athleticism goes up. And when you have a large talent pool, let's say you have judo, for instance, you have millions of people around the world doing judo. So that means the highest level of competition in judo is really high. It's really elite. The same with freestyle wrestling. When jiu-jitsu started, there are only local tournaments. It's going up now. More and more people are doing it. That will create evolution. And, you know, with 
India, you get a lot of people interested in it. I, I would look forward to India being like a huge superpower in jiu-jitsu. Within the next they must have five you come down years. for sure then. I'd love to. By the way, something a lot of people don't understand, and I, I have uh, uh, some students uh, who are, are from India or their families from India. India has a huge, huge uh, history of grappling. Huge. Oh, yes, the early 1900s, you know? Even before that. Like we did yeah. a podcast with a historian once. Um, it's one of our mid episodes, and he dates stuff back to the third century um, AD. Where oh, they absolutely! Got, where they got like stuff carved on temples, and like, um, yeah. like we'll send. I'll send that to you as well. It's really fascinating stuff. I, I was a history and cultural anthropology major in college, so I oh, love wow. that. I've been studying that for years. Um, I will send you that. You for look sure. at every culture throughout history, even if they hadn't been able to communicate with each other, they all had grappling. You yeah. even look at medieval Europe, you had grappling, you had things that looked like guillotines. You look at <laughs> ancient Greek pottery and you see people with Front the back headlocks. of the hooks in. Yeah. Front yeah, headlocks. Yeah. And, and, and leg um, entanglements going. Yeah, leg entanglements. Absolutely. But what a lot Absolutely. of people don't know is that uh, before the partition of, of India, and, you know, the creation of Pakistan, <laughs> like, all the, the, the Indo-Pakistani wrestlers came out early 1900s, beat all the Europeans. So there was a guy named, yeah, there was a man by the name of the Great Dama. He, he was Muslim. Um, and he defeated every European he went in front of. Really? A guy named, yeah, his brother named Imam Baksh. Yeah, I'm probably not pronouncing so it right, right, but... Uh, they they went to London in 1910 and they challenged all the current catch wrestlers in London because at the time in England you know they had catch wrestling which was kind of had some pins and throws some had submissions um, I believe the generic name for grappling in India is a kushti 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 yeah, kushti. Right. yeah. so they had their different styles but they they defeated every every American and European they went against and I, I think that's something that should be inspiring. For a lot of people, yeah, we had no idea. <laughs> if, we, if they did it a hundred years ago, yeah, shit, we can do it again. Yeah, but that's probably from um, the Pakistani side now, Mohit. Pre-partition, as you mentioned. It's all right, man. We're all at the same. Time. Some on the Pakistani side, but some were the Indian side. Yeah, so yeah, they, yeah. they were both uh, Hindu and Muslim wrestlers that were very, very successful, and they had the tradition of wrestling in dirt pits. Yeah, um, that still they exists. Were under, yeah. And they were so, under the British Raj at the time, so they were state-sponsored. So guys like the Great Dama, they trained all day. They right. literally, you look at right. their schedule, they trained two hours in the morning. When they would eat their diet, they'd get a massage, they trained two hours at night. And when they went to London, like I said, they, they beat everybody. Them. Uh, they even challenged a, a Japanese a jiu-jitsu judo team, and they didn't even take them up on their offer. So I would definitely encourage you guys to look into that. Yeah, uh, India has a huge tradition of, of grappling. Even right years. now, um, um, the wrestlers, what's ha what's happening with the Indian wrestlers is they're struggling to make the transition from the mud wrestling to the mat, mat wrestling. wrestling. Yes. So um, the guys who don't have access to mat wrestling, they struggle to make it into that elite level of competition. Yeah, yeah. But the guys who yeah, have a, the kind of family money, or, or not even family money, but have found a way to. Um, yeah. We have got some like gold medalists at like national levels, at the Olympic levels, rather. Yes, yeah, I've been watching. Uh, I've seen, but that. we don't have a gold yet, unfortunately. You don't. don't you will. But, but even keep in it up. Floor wrestling. I think there's somebody. Uh, there is one guy, uh, Punya. That's his surname, I think. Um, 
I forget his real, but he's he's competing in the states and he's Pajirang, doing very well. Pajirang Pajirang Punia. Punia. Yeah. yeah, another wrestler. So the floor wrestling, 50k um, wrestling opens. It's a matter of like uh, pushing interest. So like what you guys are doing is pushing interest in BJJ and grappling. And, and, you know, that's just going to get more and more people interested in it. The more and more people that are doing it, the higher the the skill level that will come out. It's just, it's literally how high of a talent pool you have. That's what we're hoping. Millions of people doing BJJ, it's going to get good quickly. Thousands of people doing BJJ, it's it's going to take a little longer. So what you, this podcast, what you guys are doing is excellent, I think. Um, now that I did have a question, you said it was mostly no gi. Is that is that due to the climate over there, or do you think it's just maybe people have more of a tradition of no gi wrestling? Um, that's a great question. It's mainly, I think, it would attribute to lack of knowledge. No MMA mainly. Um, yeah, and MMA. And MMA. Um, maybe that plus we haven't had. I mean, people in India they. Um, how do I say it? I mean, society is designed to kiss ass. So unless you have a black belt or a high level belt here coming to teach you, people won't really be, pay heed to people um, trying to teach them something, um, which is why when you take the gi off, um, you can't really tell sometimes. Then, then it, it has to be something, some accomplishment that guys has um, based on which you go to learn from them. Um, so it's like- different. I mean, I, I don't know, Mohit, what do you think? What do you think it attributes to? So, at least what I think is, like I said earlier, a lot of people are just promoted at random. Okay, mm-hmm. they've not followed a curriculum from a Henzo Gracie or a Hal Gracie or a, you know, a, a legitimate school that has proven pedigree. And because of that, like, and the popularity of MMA, it's like, why are we doing the gi? We're not really that good in it. And there's no technical proficiency. It's just, it's the same nogi sort of uh, grab and pass and hold his head down uh, just with a jacket on. So I, I don't think it's any Very judo-esque. So they don't really have the, at least I feel, don't really possess the nuance of understanding of, you know, differences in gi and nogi. Like that. Mm, maybe, maybe it could be, it could also, you know, he might be right. It could also attribute to a bit of the weather <laughs> sometimes. I mean, it could. Then again, Brazil's, I, I don't know really the difference. I'm, I'm sure it's, it's just basically hot and humid. It's, yeah, it's basically literally it's probably worse in Brazil, the humidity. Um, yeah, but something, older, yeah. something I'm sure you know as well is that um, a lot of the geese, I mean, Pakistan has probably the monopoly for geese yes. of the world, for production yes. of geese in the yes. world. Um, so bring, yeah. getting geese to India is also an issue for us because we can't create the same fabric here, which is shocking. Um, and import rates, custom duty is about 200% if I were to order something from Pakistan. Um, People just feel like, yo, let's just do the same thing without oh. the geese on. <laughs> no, that's a really good point. I didn't even think of that availability of geese. Yeah, so yes. we, don't, we have access to thick judo gis, so we'd be training like the Gracie's did in 19... And the good ones then are about... I wore judo gis for years. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but look, back back when I was starting out, the, the gi game and the no gi game were very similar. Like, it was just a matter of grips. And you could still develop a game that's very similar, gi and no gi. But, you know, the whole thing with leg entanglement and leg locks, that changes a lot. But, I again, I urge you guys, don't worry about so much about these guys that are illegitimate blue belts or they rank themselves. Again, I will say that 
because it's a sporting outlet, the truth will come out. Martial arts and martial sports that have that sporting outlet will evolve over time. And if you guys have noticed, martial arts, and this is my assessment, that don't have that, where everything's theory, everything's choreographed, actually get worse over time. Right. They actually, over time, they can become a little bit more fantastic because there's no pressure testing at all. Right. And, and literally everything just becomes theory. So that being said, if you have these guys that are just either promoting themselves or they're just used to just grappling rough with no technique. Or oh, they're just meatheads, yes. Meat, they're meatheads. We've had that here too. As soon as someone more technical comes, who that they're going to put those guys by the wayside. When you start using techniques, the meatheads will get tired and the meatheads will have to evolve or they'll have to stop doing jujitsu. It's the same here in America. We have a lot of steroided <laughs> up guys that are like, ah, this jujitsu stuff's not going to work. And then, or they just have a rough game and they don't want to become technical. They're going to get heel hooked. They're going to get guillotine <laughs> jokes. Like, and then they're going to have to evolve. So don't worry about it, guys. It, it will pick up, especially with what you guys are doing, passing the knowledge around. You know, hopefully people will see the light. But when, again, when can we comes see out you come out? When can we see you come I'd out? I'd love to come out. Yeah, I, I'd love. I still have to make it to Puerto Rico. I'd like to make it to Costa Rica, but I'd love to go out there and do seminars. I'd love to see you guys. I'd okay, love great. to go to India. We will yeah. make that happen for sure. We have uh, a big tournament coming around December. December. Um, no, so we have one April. right now, and then we'll have another one in December. Yeah, okay. um, yeah that's 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 the eleventh one. We'd love to have you out for that one. I mean, we. I mean, we plan that out. So 11th of December, that gives me plenty of time. Yeah, I'd love to come out. And yeah, get away, from, get away from the New York winter. Okay, that'd be fantastic, awesome. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, it was a pleasure, uh, Professor, having you on. Thank you, guys. Um, I, we really appreciate it. Yeah, players all here. I think it was a great conversation, and I'm really excited about what you guys are doing, and I, I'd love to visit you. And if you're ever in New York, New Jersey area, Please come to my academy, come to the Hensel Gracie Academy in New York City. You guys be like family there. We'd love to have you. That's awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, if, where do people find you on Instagram and where do people find your academy on Instagram? Uh, so I'm uh, Carl underscore Massaro, M-A-S-S-A-R-O on Instagram. My academy is uh, Hensel Gracie Northern Valley. Northern Valley is the area of Northern New Jersey where I am. So and right, they, perfect. Thank you very much, guys. Thank, Thank you, Professor. Have a good, Have a good day. All right. Take care.